So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week we dive headfirst into the legacy of the legendary Captain Beefheart, from his artistic background to his larger-than-life personality. I mean, Don was really kind of a brainiac. He had <laughs> powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Plus, we review the latest from two women at different ends of the country music spectrum, Sarah Shook and Casey Musgraves. I was hiding in doubt till you brought me out of my chrysalis. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later on in the show, Jim, we are going to uh, talk about two geniuses. That is not a word I use lightly. I no. Mean, you reserve it for only special people. Uh, Captain Beefheart and Cecil Taylor certainly qualify. That's later in the show, Greg, but first, some new music. You look out the window Would be like saying that the sky ain't blue And birds weren't made Or sitting by the door Since you don't want to stay anymore You can have your space Cowboy I ain't gonna fence you in That is a little bit of Space Cowboy, a track from the new Casey Musgraves album, Golden Hour. Greg, uh, she has been a superstar coming out of the Nashville country pop scene for some time now, since breaking wide in 2013 with Same Trailer, Different Park, a title I love. Uh, But Casey has been recording uh, basically forever. (laughs) Shortly Mm -hmm. after she could walk, she started playing the mandolin, uh, started writing uh, her own songs on guitar at the age of 12, was signed with great fanfare to Mercury Nashville in 2012, and like I said, broke wide uh, the following year. Now comes this new album, which has quite a few things you wouldn't expect on a Nashville record, among them vocoders and disco beats. What is Casey Musgraves doing? Let's play some of the music. We'll come back with our reviews. This is a track called Slow Burn by Casey Musgraves on Golden Hour on Sound Opinions. Born in a hurry, always late Haven't been early since 88 Texas is hot, I can be cold Grandma cried when I pierced my nose Good in a glass, good on
That is Slow Burn from Casey Musgraves. The new album is called Golden Hour. Um, you know, you've got that banjo in the background there, Jim, yeah. sort of signifying, well, this is still a country record, kind of, sort of. She said she recorded some of these songs under the influence of acid, which you don't hear most Nashville you don't uh, country pop singers talking up. And, and she took acid <laughs> to a Tame Impala album, yeah. which I just love. And it's, and it's easy to overstate that, but there's a definite sort of dreaminess and wonderment to this song, uh, Slow Burn in particular, that I hadn't heard before in her music. Uh, this is closer to sort of Harvest Era and Neil Young than a traditional mm. uh, Nashville-style record. Uh, I'm going to do it my way. It'll be all right if we burn it down and it takes all night. That sounds like a statement of purpose there to me. You know, I'm going to burn it all down mm-hmm. if it takes all night. Now, she's not exactly uh, burning everything down in this record, but as you mentioned, uh, there are these little detours. You know, high horse with that disco bass line. Why don't you get Uh, mother, which is kind of this uh, reverie uh, about her mother thinking about her mother and this sort of uh, meta song about what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a mother well, in this world. that track in particular with her a solo at the piano could be a Tori Amos yeah, uh, it's, recording. Yeah, it, it's really puts her out of that sort of Nashville pocket into something different. And she's probably sitting there thinking about the time of slipping and missing you know, the vocoder that kicks off Oh What a World, and giving that whole song sort of a spacey kind of glow. Uh, Rainbow is a song, uh, ends the album, it's an impressionistic piano ballad, uh, and she's draping it in those uh, LBGTQ colors, you know, this Mm -hmm. very intentional statement about uh, inclusiveness. Let go of your umbrella darling I'm just trying to tell you that there's always been a rainbow hanging over your head it doesn't go as far as I'd like her to go but man I love the direction she's heading in I think the next record is going to be amazing this is a good record I'd, I'd still recommend a buy it on this one uh, it's a buy it for me as well Greg uh, you know we don't do a lot of mainstream country on this show mainly because mainstream country kind of sucks it, it tends to be overproduced it tends to be pop in country clothing it, 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 it's country often only as a genre description for sales right but this is a young woman who grew up in a tiny East Texas town golden then moved on to to a broader worldview and the bigger world of Austin, okay? Uh, she is not a Lucinda Williams. She's not in that tradition. She's a, a millennial, has this perspective that is pro-LGBTQ, is pro-psychedelic exploration, <laughs> is open-minded, uh, and and is uh, take no guff from the men in her life. Mm-hmm. Critics have been debating a line like, mind your own biscuits and life will be gravy. Mm-hmm. And, and they're saying, oh, you know, that's Hallmark card. No, no, I, I think that's pretty funny. I think that's her playing with our notions of what country, quote-unquote, should be it's an inventive uh, guilty pleasure record so a double buy it I'm afraid of losing, not afraid of losing you because I don't think you like a thing of mine I can just up and lose that is good as gold a track from the new Sarah shook record years 
Uh, we just reviewed a mainstream country artist in Casey Musgraves. Now we're uh, going to be reviewing a record from an artist who's kind of coming very much outside the mainstream of country, but still working in that uh, vernacular. I, I can sense you working hard not to use the words <laughs> alt country because yeah. I don't know if they mean anything anymore. I don't know if they mean anything anymore either. Uh, I think it's a, a particular note though that uh, she has got a rock and band uh, called the Disarmers, which she shares credit with on this record. Sarah Shook and the Disarmers. Um, she describes herself. She is self-described as a vegan, bisexual, atheist mom in a country band from the South. And you forgot civil rights activist. <laughs> yeah, North, from North Carolina to be specific. She grew up in upstate New York, uh, you know, described as a very kind of uh, cloistered existence, you know, uh, homeschooled, very religious family. Uh, in her late teen years, she discovered pop music and uh, the rest is history. Uh, she's been gigging in the North Carolina area for about a decade uh, with this very good band for the most part, uh, but did not release a record until 2015 called Side Long. It was eventually re-released in 2017, last year, by Chicago-based Bloodshot Records, which, mm -hmm. you know, is the label most associated with that uh, AC word that we described uh, earlier, uh, a, a, a hard-edged blast of country informed by punk. Uh, this is their sound. This is their kind of artist. So she now has a new record out on Bloodshot called Years. We're going to review it here in a second. Here's a track from it called Lesson from Sarah Shook on Sound Opinions. Art. That is Lesson by Sarah Shook and the Disarmers from the new album, Years. Uh, it, you know, it's ferocious stuff, Greg. As bands on the old country uh, end of the spectrum go, uh, I would put the Disarmers up there with drive-by truckers and bottle rockets for the ferocity yeah. of Ramones meet uh, the Carter family, okay? Uh, and Sarah Shook is a great front woman and a wonderful songwriter. Uh, she has got a ferocious sense of humor. She has uh, a lot of anger that she channels through humor uh, with great melody. She is a punk rocker. You know, enough with the labels already. Everything Nashville-related is, is label-obsessed in terms of putting things in a box. I would love to see Sarah Shook and Casey Musgrave share the same bill, <laughs> right? I mean, because I think they have more in common than they have differences. Yes, this music is is a little more raw and ragged. I prefer it that way, but I, I think the attitude is is similar, and I think she's a heck of a presence. Uh, so it's a buy it for me for years. Yeah, Sarah Shooks uh, made it a really impressive record here. I thought Side Long was a good record, but this is uh, this really ups the ante in a number of ways. Some people are complaining that the record 
sands down some of those rough edges. Uh, but man, I'm telling you, Eric Peterson's guitar and Phil Sullivan's pedal steel, the way those two uh, instruments interact with Sarah's voice and with each other uh, throughout this record is a thing to behold. This is a really, really good band. I mean, this notion of sanding it yeah. down and polishing up, that's the difference between using a, a jigsaw to cut a piece of wood and a handsaw. What I, are you I, talking about? I, I think uh, mainly because all the songs aren't kind of blast furnace in your face. There is a more nuanced feel to these songs, but man, they got some edge to them. And the, and the thing to me that really stands out is Sarah Shook's voice. Uh, she has really upped her game uh, in that department. When I think of a song like Heartache in Hell, You know, man, she's crawling through some hell on that particular song. It, it's almost like a jazz vocalist, the way she's approaching. Like, she's yeah. living each word, each syllable in those lines well, you know, and making I, you feel feel what she's feeling. Damned if I do, damned if I don't. She's having these inner battles, and she's doing it in front of a microphone. Uh, and, and this is not a fake dialogue. She's yeah. wrestling with issues. I'll be damned if I do. I'll be damned if I don't. I'll be damned when I try to find my own way back home. I'll be damned if I You know, this is a record that you make when you run out of patience. <laughs> years and years and years I put into this relationship, and this yeah. is what I get, and this is what you realize, this is what comes out of it. These ten great songs. This is a buy-it record for me. So a double buy-it, and now we want to hear from you. Do you have opinions on the new albums from Casey Musgraves or Sarah Shook? Call and leave us a message at 888-859-1800. After a short break, we'll get into our discussion of singer, songwriter, and visual artist Captain Beefheart. Then later, we'll pay tribute to the late free jazz artist Cecil Taylor. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. The moon was a trip on a dark hood, and they were driving round and round. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And today we are taking a plunge into the depths of an artist who is notoriously difficult for many music fans to enjoy. But we and many other critics, or at least a few, Greg, think he's a genius. I'm talking about the one and only Captain Beefheart. So at this point, you're probably thinking, who is Captain Beefheart? <laughs> Why are we talking about him? Well, let me tell you, he's, he's influenced many, many artists across many generations. John Cale, Sonic Youth, Jack White. White just reissued Beefheart's most famous recording, in many estimations, Trout Mask Replica, on his own label, Third Man Records. Gary Lucas, a longtime collaborator with Beefheart, has just put out a Beefheart tribute record, and we're going to talk to Gary Lucas later on in the show. And in many ways, he'd been hiding out in plain sight. He had been a presence and an influence and an artist that people talked about through the classic rock era in the 60s on into the 70s. When punk and post-punk came around, he, he seemed more relevant than ever. He was on the Letterman show yeah. as a guest. He was on Saturday Night Live. He was signed to major labels like A&M and Reprise. So we think it's, uh, it's high time, Jim, for an assessment, a reassessment of a great artist who uh, hasn't gotten his due. We are going to try to tell you the tale of an eccentric musician today who really pushed the boundaries of what rock and roll could sound like. Tonight there'll be ice cream. Ice cream for crow. 
For the uninitiated, we're going to explore who this man was, why the music is important, and why, dare I say, it's magical. <laughs> Greg, you start us off. Thank you, Jim. Uh, indeed, an eccentric. Born Don Glenn Vliet in 1941 in Glendale, California, and he was a precocious kid. He was uh, dabbling in art, music, sculpture in a very early age. He began focusing on music after meeting a similarly inclined young man in high school by the name of Frank Zappa. Antelope uh, Valley <laughs> High School. <laughs> Can you imagine uh, Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa in high school? On I mean, the edge it of the happened. desert. Yes, right, I know. It happened in our history. Early on, Beefheart was interested in music, had, a, had an affinity for it. He was a multi-instrumentalist, self-taught. He had a tremendous range as a vocalist. Some people said it was three and a half octaves, which is pretty prodigious for, for a young man essentially untrained. It started out in a fairly conventional blues-based rock band. Their first single was the uh, Bo Diddley, Willie Dixon song, Diddy Wah Diddy, released in 1966. He was being touted by his record label as the great white blues singer, the next great one. But he had no interest in doing any of that. I think when we talk about Beefheart, we cannot talk about his music without mentioning these musicians that gravitated into his orbit and were quickly recruited by him uh, to perform in what was called the Magic Band. There were several incarnations of the Magic Band, but I think the one that people probably recognized the, the most was that early incarnation that included John French, Jeff Cotton, uh, Bill Harkleroad, uh, Mark Boston, and Victor Hayden, who were oh. na- nicknamed Drumbo, yes. Antenna Jimmy <laughs> Siemens, Zoothorn Rollo, uh, Rocket Morton, and the Mascara Snake. They all got rechristened, Greg. It was as if they were a cartoon super band <laughs> like the Banana Splits or Josie and the right. Pussycats. So with this band and its various incarnations, he began putting out records in the late 60s. Safe as Milk came out in 1967. Last studio record of his lifetime as a recording artist came out in 1982, Ice Cream for Crow. The pasture is tense. The pasture is tense. No, you've got the wrong idea. No, you've got the wrong intent. There were like a dozen studio albums in there uh, with various incarnations of the band. He basically retired from music in the early 90s for good. He really didn't do much for the last three decades of his life and focused on his art and sculpture. Uh, and didn't play any music for the most part. Uh, died at the age of 69 in 2010, leaving behind this incredible legacy that musicians continued to pick up on, Jim. A very important legacy, Greg. I think in terms of the surreal, psychedelic humor in the lyrics, there is no Robin Hitchcock without Captain Beefheart. In terms of the musical invention and that gruff voice, you hear it in Tom Waits. You 
hear it in, uh, you know, PJ Harvey, especially when she's working with John Parrish. Kerubu, the fractured new wave energy, and also Devo. Heavily influenced by Beefheart, as was Public Image Limited, John Lydon's post-Sex Pistols band. Lester Banks, my great rock critic hero, was, uh, you know, high on uh, atop his list of all-time favorites was Captain Beefheart. He called Beefheart the one true Dadaist in rock and roll. Mm -hmm. There was this surreal, psychedelic approach. There are so many stories that Beefheart told about his own career. He claimed early on to be a vacuum cleaner salesman (laughs) who sold a vacuum to Aldous Huxley, the champion of psychedelic exploration, the author of The Doors of Perception, as well as Brave New World. Is that true? I don't know, but it's such a great story. Who cares? Beefheart claims that he didn't finish high school because anybody who's in a school of fish just has to jump out and (laughs) chart your own way. He said he approached music the way a painter like Jackson Pollock Mm -hmm, would approach a canvas. And, And there is a lot of just throwing color on a canvas musically, rhythmically, lyrically. A harmony smile, a harmony stitch Only a crow would pick and a chicken would scratch He's a big personality. He's a bit of a tyrant. Several people who were in the Magic Band, most notably John French, Drumbo, have written about the experience. They make it sound. In fact, Drumbo uses the comparison like being a member of the Manson cult. You're yeah. living communally. The captain's making you work 18 hours You're a day. You're not getting paid. You're not getting paid. <laughs> yeah. And the music is weird and nobody likes it. <laughs> I think an interesting point of comparison, because they were friends, they were high school buddies, is with Frank Zappa. Zappa was prolific. Zappa was hailed as a genius who merely dabbled in rock while bringing the high art avant-garde concepts of, of composers like Varese to the rock and roll world. I might be moving to Montana you know, Beefheart's different, man. He's he's mm. in the dirt. He's a garage rocker, right? Zappa famously denigrated the seeds and garage rock like pushing too hard. No, 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 no. Beefheart loved that. The early records that are very bluesy, very garagey, are all about that. And only then, after mastering that, did he go into avant jazz, Coltrane and Coleman being huge uh, influences on him. Uh, He only took it to Mars after he mastered being here on Earth. Greg, I love the later records that were coming out in the New Wave era and Mm -hmm. were being such a huge influence on everything post-punk, but I think the all-time masterpiece released in June 1969 on Frank Zappa's straight records label is Trout Mask Replica. What an insane album. Mm -hmm. Look, I think I've said this on the show before. You throw a great party, but it's four in the morning. You want to get rid of the people who are still there. There are three (laughs) records to play. One is Metal Machine Music by Lou Reed, which is unlistenable, right? Mm -hmm. Number three on the list is God Ween Satan, another band that wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. Ween without Zappa. Right in the middle is Trout Mask.
mask replica. And if anybody stays after you play that, then that's going to be the best friend you've ever had in your life. Lester Bangs called that record four sides of juicy swamp brine jambalaya rugulator. And, and that's as good a description as that's, any. Uh, that's pretty brilliant. You 28 know, songs. I don't, I don't think there's a, a way to describe his music in a way that does it justice, really. But I, one comparison that springs immediately to mind when I first heard Trout Mask was the reaction that that record caused was very similar to what a, a guy by the name of Ornette Coleman caused yes. in the jazz community when he started re- releasing records in the late 50s, early 60s. There, was, there were people who wanted to hit Ornette Coleman. They actually yeah. did hit him because of what he was supposedly doing to their beloved jazz. Yeah, and he was with, just completely reinventing it in his own language. And then with Beefheart, you have that kind of chaos, but you have these wonderful Howlin' Wolf vocals. Oh, yeah. Big eyed beans from Venus. Oh, my, oh, my. Boys and girls, earth people around the circle, mixtures of man alike. Big eyed beans from Venus, don't let anything get in between us. He was, an, he was a genius vocalist. He was a great instrumentalist. The band were a bunch of virtuosos. People don't realize how great those guys were to understand. I mean, his instructions would be like, Mr. Zoothorn Rollo, hit that long lunar note and let it float. You right. Know, right, 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 right in the middle of Big Eyed Beans from Venus. Mr. Zoothorn Rollo, hit that long lunar note and let it float. I mean, this guy was throwing out instructions, obtuse, uh, you know, uh, angular. I mean, those words get thrown around with him. I think he was trying to create a language here. He was Mm -hmm. creating a language that was his own. He didn't want it to belong to anyone else except him. So the intent was to confuse and disturb and subvert and disrupt. But it wasn't because he just liked screwing around with people, although I'm sure he did that as well. It was more about creating art that was very much representing his own voice, his totally his own self-constructed world. Well, and he, that's he, what's so appealing to artists like P.J. Harvey yeah. and Devo and Strummer and, and all on the and rest on who on. loved him. I think, Greg, a, a key to understanding him, and this came late in his career, he was on The Letterman Show. And he was asked many times throughout uh, his long career, uh, where does the name Beefheart come from, right? And he gave different answer every yeah. time. That's the thing. You're going to get something different from Beefheart every time. But he told David Letterman, I have a beef in my heart against this society, mm. right? He did not want to be cookie cutter. He was a true original. And he thought we all should be because won't the world be more interesting? Now, granted, that doesn't mean you're going to love his music. Mm-hmm. It might be too original for you or too unique or just too chaotic. But we're going to try to illuminate why we love it. After a quick break, we'll get more into the legacy and legend of Captain Beefheart by talking to his collaborator, Gary Lucas. Then we'll each give you a quintessential Captain Beefheart track we can't live without. Plus, Greg will pay tribute to the late jazz pianist Cecil Taylor. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Nothing makes it move from the bottom 
to the top? Does it start at the bottom? Or does it start at the top? Megan Jade from Dart. Sends him Spock. Sends him Spock. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and we're continuing our conversation on the genre-blending noise rocker Captain Beefheart. And I could add a few more hyphens to that description as never, well. Never enough hyphens with Beefheart. Exactly. Now it's our pleasure to talk with a longtime Beefheart collaborator. That's guitarist, sideman in the Magic Band, and former manager of Beefheart, Gary Lucas. Pleasure speaking to you both. You know, it is hard to come to grips with the captain. It's a difficult musical legacy, an incredibly rewarding one, and that's one of the things good critics and, and dare I say, good musicians, archivists, scholars like yourself, that's one of the things we do. It's like, hey, don't be scared. You can learn to love the captain. Oh, yeah, no, I agree. I think anybody who has ears, this is actually one of his great lyrics. If you got ears, you got to listen. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> When I, I started to dig deeper, I found a review from an early Rolling Stone piece by Ed Ward. Great critic. He's been yeah. on the show. He said, you know, I never understood Beefheart until one day when I had to clean my apartment and I was pushing the room around my wooden floors and suddenly it began to move on its own while I was playing Beefheart. <laughs> and I think that kind of captures, you know, there's three things. I mean, there's a sort of mysticism to his music. Yes. There's a physicality, which mm. people miss because it's so weird. And then there's the brain stuff. You got to think about this because this ain't like anything you've heard before. Right. No, I, well, Ed nailed it right there. I mean, there's a physicality, as you said. Uh, there's a power with the voice and the persona. I mean, Don was really kind of a brainiac. He had <laughs> powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. You have worked with Leonard Bernstein. Yes. You worked famously with Jeff Buckley, yes. John Cale, and his ex-partner, Lou Reed. Yes. I, you know, you, you, the list of people with whom you've collaborated is, uh, is just like a who's who, Patti Smith, Bob Newworth. Mm -hmm. Is he a genius? Was he a genius? Oh, I absolutely Don, he was. Compared he, to all these people you've played with? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I think he was really uh, one of the brightest and most imaginative creative people I've ever known. And I never met anybody even remotely like him. He was volcanic. He was constantly coming up with brilliant observations, imagery, and uh, poetic uh, perceptions of the world around him and what was going on inside his head at the same time. And sketching and drawing and muttering into a tape recorder and, and you know, scat singing, writing songs on the spot. It was just unbelievable uh, to be around. And he never seemed to sleep. He would push himself for days on end, you know, and then say, I'm fighting the tyranny of the sun, man. Then it goes up and goes down and goes up and goes down. Like, he hated that. I think, you know, when you look back and listen to the music right from Save His Milk through Ice Cream for Crow, there's a timeless quality about it. I think that's largely due to his larger-than-life personality. You know, once you kind of succumb to 
the Beefheart mindset of Don Van Vliet hollering at you with this, you know, amazing voice. He definitely, from the first album, I mean, with the lyrical and whimsical touches of adding, say, a theremin to a song like Electricity. I think there was, you know, a, really a boundless quest on his part to push the envelope as to what rock music could inhabit, you know, or constitute. So it was kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, he was a visitation that was unleashed on us, you know. Uh, <laughs> and we were lucky to have him, you know, while he was walking. The yeah, yeah. yeah. Ooh, light on the model, everybody, even Mrs. Wooten Wellis. So Don was notoriously this guy who exaggerated a lot, who made up stories. He built his own mythology in a lot of ways. He would would talk about the making of Trout Mask Replica, his masterpiece, by saying that he basically taught those musicians from scratch. They knew nothing when they came in, and I taught them how to to play this way. Um, So how much of that was BS and how much of it was real? Some of it is definite willful disinformation, let's say, on Don's part. I mean, I look at him as a kind of a teller of tall tales in the American tradition, you know what I mean? Like a Paul Bunyan yeah, like or Huck somebody. Yeah. yeah, So he created that larger-than-life persona. But, you know, as far as the abilities of the musicians in the band at that time, they were all first-rate players uh, who'd been playing for years. And, in fact, what drew them to Don was hearing the earlier incarnations of the band, you know, from Safe as Milk. They aspired to play like that. So to make a statement like, yeah, I taught them from scratch, you know, I mean, sometimes you he would make outrageous statements and you'd be like, oh, come on, who's he getting? You'd think to yourself, and other times people would back it up. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so there was a back and forth and a disconnect sometimes with the corporeal beef heart and the fantastical, you know, a larger than life beef heart. But I'd say he was somewhere in the middle there. My smile is stuck. I cannot go back to your frown So with Trout Mask Replica, it's a difficult album for newcomers to beef heart's music to comprehend. It sometimes just sounds like a bunch of noise. But you get these stories that uh, he was extremely meticulous about what he wanted to hear. You know, although he couldn't read or write music, everything was sort of scripted out in in his head, and he would translate this for the band, and they would play it. But there's also stories that his drummer, John French, was really translating Beefheart's very obtuse language to the rest of the band, and in a way was a co-composer and arranger in, in a lot of this music. What's the truth here? Don was the prime mover on that record as far as generating the music. But the fact is he wasn't a trained musician. He couldn't replicate a lot of the pieces he composed insofar as he might compose a piece of music on piano, hand it to French, who would then try and make sense of it and transcribe it and arrange it a bit for the other musicians to play. I can tell you times, you know, we worked really hard when I was in the band in trying to realize compositions and we thought we were really grooving along. And Tom would walk in and say, no, 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 man, that's not it at all. That's not what I had <laughs> in mind. 
and kind of rip mm -hmm. up work we'd been working on for about an hour or so. So it could be darn frustrating. Still in all, you know, everybody around it at the point at the point I was in it, and certainly I, I believe, you know, in the period of the trout mask gestation, were very aware that they were working on something of world historical importance. And that's why, you know, often they hung in there despite deprivations yeah. of things like food and money <laughs> and yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, not they, easy. They going. believed that it was important work, you know, and mm -hmm. and yes, I thought it was chaotic the first time I heard it too. It took me a second listen before I realized these guys are not just making it up, but it's all been rigorously worked out, you know, so that there's stops but it's and starts. a Picasso sculpture. It's not a, uh, uh, a Michelangelo sculpture, right. right? We have to accept it on its terms. Boy, boy. <laughs> I think people in the rock world don't realize how uh, successful Don was in the last quarter of his life as a visual artist, yes. right? Uh, those canvases were selling for significant money, Yes, uh, his artwork. What will endure? These 12 albums made in his lifetime in the studio uh, and the various other and sundry, or the art, or will both well, be of equal import? That's a good question. I mean, the fact is the music I keep going back to because I find it endlessly fascinating and it really moves me. But I got to say a lot of the art moves me now too. So hopefully both. And also I want to throw in his words, his poetry is right up yeah. there too. This guy was a multi, you know, threat as an artist. I just, you know, his imagination and the way he could use imagery and just off the cuff to describe what's essentially, you know, the real world or the commonplace and transform it into like a very surrealistic world this is phenomenal. It's just great. So, so I like all of it, but you're talking yeah, to yes. a partisan right here. Already. You can't have too much mm -hmm. beef art. Yeah. The world is better. That is. Beef. I think so. We need more. We have been talking to Gary Lucas, longtime collaborator with Captain Beefheart. Uh, Gary, thanks so much for coming on the show oh, and talking about the captain guys. with us. Yeah, was, I'm, yeah I'm, I'm honored. Thank you for having me. Now for the last part of our show, we're each going to pick a track of Captain Beefheart's that we think is a good entry point for people who weren't familiar. But, Greg, we have to set this up. I think in the long history of sound opinions, never have we had such skepticism from our producers. You want to do a show I would say about it was a contentious debate. Beefheart? Yeah. Alex Claiborne is here with us. Alex is the youngest member of the Sound Opinions team. The, uh, the resident poptimist. And Alex, you know, you, you have been working on this now for weeks. And I admire how gamely you've gone into this. But my goal with this show is to make you and all the listeners who've never experienced Beefheart or who think they don't like him to come away as fans. Sure. Are you getting there? Jim, I think it's important to note that when I first started um, doing this interview, when I was cutting it together, putting the show together, I was absolutely not a fan of Captain Beefheart. Um, just sonically for my ear, it just wasn't pleasant to listen to. It hurt. You listen to a song like Electricity, and he almost sounds like Harvey Firestein. He's just got <laughs> that that real, and no disrespect to Harvey Firestein. But it just sounded very, it sounded like 
he was putting on a character, which he's doing. He is. Um, but I just couldn't. I had a hard time connecting with him initially. I had a hard time. Gary Lucas says getting into that that beef heart gestalt, that beef heart you know way of life of him screaming at you. All right. Well, we're <laughs> gonna play these songs, and maybe maybe finally by the end, uh, you'll be there. Now, Trout Mask Replica, as we said, with Gary, as I said earlier, is a hard record. It can drive people out of your house, allegedly. All of the songs, 28 of them, Beefheart wrote in eight and a half hours at the piano, an instrument he did not play. And then it took eight months for the Magic Band to record them uh, meticulously. But, but, but Alex and everyone at home, there are pop songs there. There are songs that are not that far from rock and roll. And I'm going to play the greatest of them, Ella Guru. This is a tribute to a strange and mysterious woman. Remember, it's 1969. And, and there's this hippie goddess, perhaps, an artistic muse, a, a force of nature. Hello, moon. Hello, moon. Hi, Ella. Hello, Ella Guru, right? I just love the way that Beefheart is, is calling out this magical, mystical, witchy force of a woman. And then in the middle, he turns to the mascara snake, and he asks for a solo, and he wants it. Fast and bulbous. Here's Ella <laughs> Guru from Trout Mask Replica by the great Captain Beefheart on Sound Opinions. High yellow, high red, high blue, she flew. High yellow, high yellow Guru. She do what she mean and she do what she do. Got something for me, got something for you. She show something. Guru by Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band ahead of its time in 1969. Greg, it'll be ahead of its time in 2016. Yeah, it still sounds like its own universe. Um, nobody's quite replicated it. Uh, <laughs> well, well, Zappa famously said at the time, "There's no one on Earth making music like this." Right, Zappa. And Zappa it's still true. Allegedly oversaw the production of that album, and, yeah. and really, he just said, "I had to give up and let Don do whatever he wanted." Right. Beefheart. So I'm going to go to a later period, Beefheart. Uh, I think there was two important phases in his career. Obviously, the start, which was so shocking for so many people and and really formed the basis of his uh, genius for some and his inscrutability for many others. There was a period where I think he actually started to become somewhat understood. His music started to make sense in the context of punk and post-punk in the late 70s, early 80s. He'd sort of gone away. The magic band had imploded. They got tired of his shenanigans, namely treating them like dirt and not paying them. And he basically retooled the band. And again, found a group of brilliant musicians who wanted to work with him, including people like our guest, Gary Lucas, and the future Pixie sideman, Eric Drew Feldman, multi-instrumentalist, and, and made a series of albums that I think really kind of reinvented him for a new generation. Shiny Beast, Bat Chain Puller in 78, Doc at the Radar Station in 1980, Ice Cream from Crow in 1982. Around this time, he starts appearing on Saturday Night Live. People were like, oh, what the heck is this? <laughs> He's on Saturday late night, night talk shows. He's swatting imaginary bats that are swooping in at him. They're not there, but you see them because he makes you. It's incredible. So if I were to talk to a 
a listener who is skeptical, let's say, about beef heart, I would point them to dock at the radar station. I would say, don't go to Trout Mask first. That's, that's too hard. Dock at the radar station is kind of an entry point for somebody who is trying to find out about beef heart but doesn't want to be hammered over the head <laughs> with, the, <laughs> with an imposing beef heart uh, legacy. Um, there's a song called Ashtray Heart on dock at the radar station uh, that uh, has, has a key line in it. Somebody's had too much to think. Uh, and it, <laughs> and he's, he's, he's oppressed. He's oppressed by this person. It, it probably is a woman, but we're not really quite clear. He's being oppressed. And the punk rock guitar, uh, that strangulated guitar in there, combined with a Mellotron, which is a you know progressive rock instrument, uh, this kind of mix of instrumentation gives you a little hint about how he would combine these worlds in really strange and wonderful ways. And at the same time, you still have a song there. So I think, Alex, I think what people are desperate to hear from a Beefheart is something to hang on to. Give me a melody. Give me a song. Give a me hook. something that I can remember. And this song is full of them. This is uh, Captain Beefheart with the Magic Band from Doc at the Radar Station. It's called Ashtray Heart on Sound. You like an ashtray heart. Kiss to the pumps right from the start. I feel like a glass shrimp with a big panty with a sacrament. Chaperone. Make invalids out of Superman. Call in a shrink and pick you up in a girdle. Use me like an ashtray heart. Start case of the punks. Another day, another way. Somebody's had too much to think. Open up another case of the punks. That's Ashtray Hart from uh, Captain Beefheart. So, Alex, we are ready. To be sent to prison. <laughs> have my we verdict? done it? Have we done it? Have we made you a Beefheart fan? Well, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I'm either getting over a bad cold or I, I have a mild allergy to Captain Beefheart. But it's going down. Da- the symptoms are going down. And I feel like as I've listened <laughs> to Captain Beefheart more, as you guys have recommended these tracks, I definitely see and understand your point of view better, which was something that initially <laughs> when I started working on, I had some trouble with. But I, when I was going through his catalog initially, um, I started at the beginning and I started with Safe as Milk, which was an album that made more sense to me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a garage out, rock yeah, take on the blues. It came out in 1967, you know, a song like Yellow Brick Road that's mm-hmm. like, it's got mm-hmm. a melody, you can kind of remember it. That to me makes more sense, but I think my issue with Beefheart was sounds out of step eventually you get to a point where you would think is this out of phase is this yeah, being played on sure it sounds wrong it's it supposed sounds yeah. playing at the wrong speed and there's something yes. something defective about this record and i think once you accept that that was a choice that he made i mm-hmm. think you can sort of move past that and say okay like would it be something that i would go listen to for pleasure no but as a piece of art or as a piece of music art i can understand it a little better with this conversation in particular, we're not out there to make every single person a Captain Beefheart fan. Like, you don't have to go out and listen to every record start <laughs> to finish. There are yeah. some people that are going to do that, which is awesome. Um, I think he's just an important character and an important figure yeah. to talk about. Um, he's he's just a kind of a, he was kind of a weird guy, you know, you know what but it he is, embraced Alex? it. It is like Sriracha. 
Okay. Yes. <laughs> Some people drink it by the gallon, yeah. right? especially here in Chicago. It's a big hot sauce favorite, right? Other people never go near the stuff. But then once in a while, when you have a cold, like you do right now, yes. <laughs> a little sriracha right now will really do you good. I think my, you know, I like my Captain Beefheart like I like my sriracha, just a little bit every now and again. <laughs> yes, we've succeeded, Mr. Khan. We have succeeded. Thank you, Alex Claiborne. Thank you, guys. That wraps up our discussion of Captain Beefheart, and now we want to hear from you. Are you a lifelong fan of Captain Beefheart? Were you a skeptic that we converted, or do you hate our guts now? <laughs> Call and leave us a message with your feelings and why at 888-859-1800. That is a little bit of Cecil Taylor, who uh, died on April 5th at the age of 89. Jim, it seems appropriate that we are mentioning Cecil Taylor in the context of a Captain Beefheart uh, show. Like-minded uh, spirits. Yes, they are indeed. Um, you know, artists who called into question, you know, what's music, what's performance, what is art? Uh, and that's not for everybody. We will freely admit not everybody understands Captain Beefheart and not everybody could understand Cecil Taylor. They were divisive figures, but they were incredibly important and influential figures. Taylor was a poet, a teacher, a philosopher. He was steeped in classical music. He was steeped in jazz and blues, much like Picasso uh, was a very formal uh, you know, expert painter uh, before he started g- getting into abstraction. T- Taylor is the same way in the way he approached music. He understood the fundamentals of the form, and then he broke it apart to create his own language. Uh, he found like-minded collaborators by the time he uh, recorded his uh, most significant early record at the Café Montmartre in 1962 with uh, Jimmy Lyons on saxophone and Sonny Murray on drums. I paid tribute to Murray a few months ago when he mm. died. And it's hard to find the right players because this guy was sort of uh, divorcing the music from from time, melody, chords, and it, turning it into this free-flowing conversation, a barrage of uh, solos coming at you at the same time, polyphonic. I saw him twice, and the only thing I can compare it to is like, this must be what it feels like to be inside of a hurricane, or <laughs> that Leggetti Requiem that you would hear in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, that mm. moment where they see the the, 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 the obelisks, you know, they, they become just completely... Uh, hypnotized by the sound, this this vision. That's the same thing I felt when I saw uh, Cecil Taylor. It was that kind of force. So you get a little taste of what he was all about in this excerpt from his uh, great live recording at the Café Montmartre from 1962. Uh, a, a little bit of call with Cecil Taylor, Jamie Lyons, and Sonny Murray on Sound Opinions.
That is a little bit of the great Cecil Taylor from 1962 at the Café Montmartre, dead at the age of 89. Greg, another big loss in the music world this week, Yvonne Staples, dead at the age of 80. We uh, talked at length to her sister, Mavis Staples, over two episodes of Sound Opinion. Mm -hmm. You can find them in our archives. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio performance and conversation with the great Jason Isbell. Sound Opinions, as always, is produced by Brendan Banisak, Alex Claiborne, and Ayanna Contreras. Bus, bus, line is busy every time that I phone. Bus is the longest talker I ever known. Bus, bus, I've been trying hard to reach him all day. Bus, when I get him, I forget what to say. Should I call the operator? On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, this is Adam. I'm calling from San Francisco, and I'm calling a little late on this one, but uh, I thought it was worth mentioning um, in terms of record industry songs. The band Spoon put out a mini EP, so it was like a double feature of record industry songs. And what was unique about this release was uh, it was calling out a certain record executive. Uh, the songs are The Agony of Lafitte and Lafitte Don't Fail Me Now. Basically, it referenced their falling out uh, with Electro Records. Also, I'm hoping you guys review the new Jack White. I'd love to hear your opinion on it. I'm still grappling with it and don't know where I land, but it certainly is uh, something worth hearing your opinions on. Hi, my name is Tom Richardson from uh, Reading, Massachusetts. I always enjoy the show, really like the Eggs on Main Street um, episode. My personal favorite is All Down the Line. You know, your episode had me go back and listen to other things I can uh, probably appreciate a little bit more, like Torn and Prey. So I thought that was um, great. When you talked about the bands that Eggs on Main Street influences, the one that really immediately came to mind, and they happen to be from your neck of the woods, is Twin Peaks, especially a song like Cold Lips. Their whole sound over the last few years is kind of reminiscent of Exile Main Street. So appreciate uh, what you guys do. Keep up the good work, and uh, I'll keep listening. Thanks a lot. Hi, this is Blair calling from New York. I wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed the Exile on Main Street episode and share with you my own experience with the album. It came out when I was 12 years old and I considered myself a big-time Rolling Stones fan, having owned Hot Rocks as well as Let It Bleed and Sticky Fingers. But other than Tumbling Dice, I just could not get into that album at all, and the album overall was a gigantic disappointment to me. I didn't turn back to it for about 15 years. 
And at some point in my mid-20s, I think I saw that Exile was at the top of a Rolling Stone list of greatest albums. And on that basis, I thought it would be worth revisiting. In the interim, I had become more familiar with the genres the Stones had worked with on Exile, blues, gospel, country, soul. And the whole thing just blossomed for me uh, almost on one listen. I should add that I have a 17-year-old son who was into a lot of great music, both contemporary and old. He does not listen to any Rolling Stones music whatsoever except Exile on Main Street, which he absolutely adores. So it is a weird kind of symmetry, I suppose. Hi, this is Rob calling from Madison, Ohio. And my Teenage Rebellion record from the early 1970s was Yoko Ono Fly. Nothing upset a parent more than Yoko. And she is precious to this day. I love her. Anyway, uh, God bless. Your program is terrific. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.